our sermon text is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So if you turn in your Bibles with me, we'll, we're going to look at that. What we've been doing this summer is doing a series on prayer and trying to learn how to pray. And, and really, this is a motivational series of why we ought to pray. And it's always been, and I hope you see this theme, we pray because of who we are in Christ. It's, we pray out of our identity first, that we, because we've received grace, therefore we pray. We have this privilege. And, uh, and even as we go through these texts, we're still we're illustrating the different ways that Jesus taught us to pray. And we've talked about how do you pray to God as Father? How do you pray for God's kingdom to come? Uh, this week we get to talk about how do you pray for other people's forgiveness? How, so what if you think you're better than they are? And that's what this, this parable is about. And so uh, prayer is reverse thunder, as we've been calling it. It's this picture of our prayers going up into God's presence. He hears them because of grace, and he casts them back down for his will to be done on earth through us. And so I pray this motivates us to pray more. Let's, let's read it. Uh, this is the big idea is that now that Jesus, we looked at it last week, has dirtied his reputation as the Son of Man, he says, now when you do the same, pray as a tax collector. This is God's word. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, have merc be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Now, Father, use this time to teach us to pray like a tax collector, uh, to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so I ask that as you would use this series and this time in your word um, to show us our continual need for your kindness and mercy to us. So send your spirit to show us the horror of our sin, but the beauty of a God who would die, gladly die for moral failures like us. So transform us. Transform us by your word and spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with this question. What is the main thing that will ruin your prayer life and your relationships with people around you, according to Jesus here? What's the thing that's going to uh, guarantee that God won't listen to you and you won't play well with others? <laughs> According to Jesus here, it's religion. Your, your good deeds, being religious. And so for those of us who are Christians, uh, this, is, this is a gunshot aimed at us, aimed at our heart. And Jesus says that 
relationships can be built absolutely through through the gospel but religion your good works picture somebody who's praying regularly who's moral who's generous who's kind who uh who's doing all the right things they're the ones in danger in danger of being judgmental of pushing other people away uh, through their good deeds that includes all of us. I mean, I'm, I'm standing here with you. This is, this one's humbling. If you start to hear why Jesus tells this parable and how to apply it. Because when you get religious, when you say, I'm going to take God seriously, there's something about sin in our heart uh, that, that takes a good thing, makes it an ultimate thing, and people get hurt. And, and I want to try and distinguish between being hurt by what is true and being hurt by hurtful behavior. We're in danger of despising everyone else, it says in verse 9. And really, in verse 14, you're, you're in danger of, be, of being despised by God, despising him, not knowing him as he is. This, Jesus tells this story, this parable, as he says in the beginning, to those who trusted themselves, who thought they were good, and, and because of that, they did not like anyone else. They just didn't get along with him. And so you got the hero of the story, which is great. It's the criminal, uh, the, the, moral, uh, the moral monster, if you will. And the, the villain is the guy who's Mr. Clean. Uh, he's, he's doing everything can, he can and then some to do all the right things according to God's word. Uh, and so as we, this is a sermon on prayer, but I want to take what Jesus is telling us seriously I think what he's telling us is that your prayer life if you have one is going to reveal how judgmental you are how capable you are of being judgmental uh, of despising people different than you of looking down on them of saying you're not welcome here because you don't look like and act like me and so really what I want you to hear this morning is that our prayer lives is they're showing us, it's like a mirror, it's showing us how kind and gracious we believe our God to be. So it's a test. Jesus says, uh, to those who think they're awesome, take this test. Uh, here's the danger of religion. And so I'm going to get, I'm going to have an illustration that runs through this. It's a lady named Mrs. Turpin. Uh, she's one of my favorite characters from, from fiction, a Flannery O'Connor short story. She's American, she's from the 20s, she's from the Bible Belt. I mean, she is religion all wrapped up into American culture. She embodies what it's like to be religion. religious. It's from a short story called Revelation. And you've got to remember, we've, I've talked about her before, but I'll just remind you, she's a Christian. And her job is to try and open the eyes of people who are blind to the damage that their, their self-righteousness is doing. And so Mrs. Turpin, this is what she does. This is how the story starts. She walks into a doctor's waiting room and does something we all do. We just don't talk about it. She starts comparing herself to everyone there. You do this, right? Who should I sit next to? Who looks safe? Uh, what are they wearing? What are they wearing? <laughs> uh, will I have to talk to them? Will I be safe? Uh, will I be accepted? Do they smell funny? Did I put on deodorant today? You know, these kind of things. We start comparing. 
So, I mean, Jesus, he's saying that our problem is righteousness. And Mrs. Turpin embodies that, that, that this longing to be righteous is what run, runs the world. And that's what I want you to think about before we get into the story. That when we go in and we start comparing ourselves to one another, whatever it might be, maybe it's here this morning, it's all summed up in this word righteousness. Am I righteous enough to be accepted by you? Or the bigger question, are you righteous enough to be accepted by God? What do I have to do to be liked? What do I have to do to fit in? I mean, this is what dating is all about. I mean, <laughs> uh, when you go to a job interview or you're, you're trying to paint a picture of your, your r- resume of what your righteousness is, um, teenagers, kids, this is the world in which you live. There was a survey done several years ago about just asking kids what, th- what they find f- valuable. And what they determined was that teenagers, I mean, this is eight years ago, so you're in your 20s now. They'd rather be famous than successful. They want to be popular. They want to be liked. They want to be admired. Uh, They want likes on social media. They want to be shared. Uh, It's normal. I mean, you remember middle school. It's terrifying. You go in with your best clothes, and they don't feel like they're pretty enough. This obsessive pursuit of righteousness, I want you to see, it it invades and permeates everything. And it's the cause, according to Jesus, uh, of not getting along with others. It's causing all kinds of destruction in your life. And so being religious is not just a a God thing, it's an everywhere thing. So Mrs. Turpin, Flannery (laughs) O'Connor, she tells a story about Mrs. Turpin going into the doctor's waiting room, and this is how she describes it. She says, the doctor's waiting room, which was very small and almost full when the Turpins entered, and Mrs. Turpin, who was very large, made it look small, seem smaller by her presence. And she sized up the room, and there was one empty chair and a place on a sofa with a blonde child in a dirty romper who should have been told to move over and make room for the lady. Here's another observation. She says, She cannot understand why a doctor with as much money as they make, charging $5 a day, this tells you how long ago it was, (laughs) just to stick their head in the door and look at you, couldn't afford a decent-sized waiting room. This one was hardly bigger than a garage. The table was cluttered with limp-looking magazines, and at one end of it was a big green glass ashtray full of cigarette butts and cotton wads with little blood spots on them. Mrs. Turpin said if she had anything to do with the running of the place, that would have been emptied so often. She finds a safe spot next to somebody she describes as stylish. And they have this long conversation that it doesn't matter what size you are as long as you have a good disposition. Just be nice. Next to the stylish lady is, is somebody named Mary Grace, who she describes as a fat girl. Mary Grace can't stand all the self-righteousness in the room. And she's reading a book called Human Development, and she's just scowling at Mrs. Turpin as if she didn't like her looks. Mrs. Turpin said the poor girl's face was blue with acne, and she thought how pitiful it was to have a face like that at that age. And so she gave the girl a friendly smile, but the girl only scowled the harder. <laughs> Mrs. Turpin herself was fat, but she had always had good skin, and though she was 47 years old, there was not a wrinkle on her face 
except from around her eyes from laughing too much. She describes the people next to the ugly girl. They're white trashy. And the one lady is wearing a dress made out of the same thing she, she uses to feed her chickens, the same print. And then she goes on to make all kinds of racist comments that I don't want to get fired for repeating. She says, you know, white trash, they're worse than black people any day. She brags about her pigs. They raise pigs. She said, our pigs are not like your pigs because they don't live in the mud. They live in a pig parlor. And we hose them down every night. <laughs> and she would pray to herself at night. At night when Mrs. Turpin can't fall asleep, she would occupy herself with the question of who she would have chosen to be if she couldn't be herself, that if Jesus said, if there are two places available for you, you could either be white trash or black. And she settles after much begging, pleading, and arguing with Jesus in her mind that she would be a clean, respectable Negro woman herself, but black. And she occupies herself at night naming the classes of people at the bottom of the heap. In her world are most colored people not the kind she would have been. And then above them, would have, or next to them, not above, were the white trash. Above them were the homeowners, and then the homeowners and the landowners, that's where she was with her husband, Claude. And above them were people with lots of money and bigger houses. But that's when it got complicated, because you had good blood who went into debt and had to sell their house, and then you had colored people who were successful, and she just would fall asleep, ending with a lot of their death and destruction, to put it politely. Mrs. Turpin has a righteousness problem, to be blunt. She's just a, an extreme, maybe, but not really, if you're reading the news. An ordinary person stepping into a room and saying, will I fit in? What kind of conversations do you have with yourself? Thank God I'm not like that. Or, oh God, I wish I had their life, their stuff. I mean, Jesus is communicating this story here in a way that, that the translators aren't sure exactly how to put it. Either the Pharisee is praying by himself to himself, just, just having a self-conversation, or he's just standing alone in front of everyone doing this. They don't know with a by himself where to connect it. Um, but it, it makes sense either way, because people who think they're great, people are disgusted by that and leave them alone. <laughs> and... Well, to use Jesus' words, you know you are praying to yourself and not God if you despise people who don't look like you. Your God will end up looking just like you. And so I give this introduction. We're going to come back to Mrs. Turpin to say, here's the problem in Jesus' parable. How do we pray in a way that, yeah, we're going to be religious, but to do it in a way that draws us both closer to God and closer to one another. Um, that, that puts water on the fire of our judgment and, and grows our appreciation of grace. You know, that, that drives us down so God can lift us up. Because Jesus is showing us here that there are prayers, as we just heard from Mrs. Turpin, that make God gag. And there are prayers that make him smile that he can't resist, that he runs to. So let's look at them. There's two prayers. You've got a good guy and a bad prayer. 
and then we've got a bad guy and a good prayer, and we're going to talk about how to, put it to, how to apply it. Let's look at the first one. We've got a good guy and a bad prayer. It says, Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. It's, it's pretty simple. doesn't mean a lot to us. We don't have those memories. But if I say I went to a baseball game, you, know, you have pictures in your head right, of, of what the experience is like. For Jesus' Hebrew audience, they had a very clear set of experiences of what it was like to go to temple. And so here's, we've got to get this background. This will help make sense. Uh, one of the scholars named Kenneth Bailey describes the, the way the temple service would go. Is each service would begin outside of the sanctuary next to this great high altar, and there would be a sacrifice. Some animal would die. It would be for the sins of Israel as the blood of a lamb was sprinkled on this altar. All right? That's how the service began. We cannot come into the presence of God unless there is a sacrifice. And then, in the middle of the prayers, there would be a sound of silver trumpets, there would be a clanging of cymbals, there would be a reading of psalm, there would be scriptures, there would be singing. And then the officiating priest would go into the outer part of the temple, because you've got to remember, there's two parts. You have the building, the outside, and then you have the Holy of Holies, uh, the, the place where the high priest could only go in once a year. So there were two rooms inside the temple. And the, but the officiating priest would go inside, and he would offer incense and, and trim the lamps. And at that point, everybody would start praying. And so the idea was that the burning of the incense would mirror the praying outside. And so just, this is what's happening. Jesus says, two men went to a temple to pray, and we're supposed to hear two men went to watch a lamb die for their sins so that they could pray. And so you've got this Pharisee, a good guy, who's come to temple, watched a lamb communicate to him that he needs grace, and then he stands up and prays the prayer that he prayed. Now, I want you to set aside your prejudice for the Pharisees for a moment. These are really good guys. I mean, these are the ones, these are the people that run our communities. I mean, they're in Rotary, they're in the BSPA, they're, they're giving to charity, they're, um, they're people who are Christians, they're religious, they know their Bible. They faithfully attend service. They give to charities. They're big on families. They feed the homeless. They probably vote Republican just because of abortion, right? whatever your stereotype is. But the idea is the Pharisee, in his actions, everything he says here is the kind of guy you could build a church around. He'd probably be a Sunday school teacher. He'd probably be an elder. He's somebody important and respected. And just be honest. I mean, who would you rather sit next to? A tax collector or a Pharisee? A tax collector is the kind of person who rolls up to church with rims on their tires, with the bass thumping and a girlfriend on each arm. Their lives... You know, definitely not together. Sin is very obvious. And that unless you are from that culture, <laughs> unless you're a tax collector, most of us would rather hang out with people like us. Right? The religious. The moral. You look at his prayer. This man has the theological awareness that his goodness is a gift from God. He's saying a good thing here. He thanks God for his privilege. 
Thank God I'm not like other men. He's saying, God, it's your, you are the ultimate reason I am the way I am. Do you thank God for that? I mean, if you were born in, in the rice paddies of North Korea, your life would look very different. All the effort in the world wouldn't change your plot in life. But thank you, God, for making me who I am. Or even look what he says is about fasting. I fast twice a week. And there's nothing in the Old Testament that says you should do that twice a week. It actually says there's one day a year you should fast in Leviticus, in the Day of Atonement. And so you got this guy. He's an overachiever. He's not just, you know, meeting the bare standards. He's, he's really good. And he's fasting twice a week. I mean, Jesus picked on them, but they tithed everything. It means 10% of his money of his vegetables, you know, everything he owned, he gave back into the service of the church. And so one commentator says, if you read this, we have caught the Pharisee in the very act of giving God all the glory, all the credit. And Jesus says, that guy is not accepted by God. He goes home not justified. This prayer, it's a bad prayer. It's kind of like, it's like a shiny apple on the outside, but on the inside is rotted, full of maggots. And he, and he can't see it. That's the humbling part. He has no idea that his good works are what are keeping him from God. And so look, religion has the destructive power to force you to compare yourselves to others that will lead you to despise your neighbor if you make it all about you and what you're doing. And the scary part here in Jesus' story is you might not even know it. Everyone around you probably knows it, but you won't know it. And just think about it. How would you respond if I stood up here? I mean, Jeff's looking at me. Sorry, Jeff. If I stood up and prayed, thank you, God, that I am not like Jeff Butler. <laughs> Those are fighting words. <laughs> so when you see self-righteousness, you know what it is. You just want to deck them and bring them down a peg. Maybe I'm the only one. So that's my confession. <laughs> this is what we do. How do we deal with intolerant people these days? We ruin their lives on the Internet. We shame them into oblivion and irrelevance put out their address and phone number and send them threats on Twitter. And Jesus is saying that religion, good works, done for yourself, not for God, and sometimes even done wanting to impress God, that's, you're, you're going to go home not accepted. Remember Mrs. Turpin? She's comparing, she's ranking people based on those who have everything and the God-given wit to use it right. And she has no idea that it's nauseating. She has no idea that her Christian deeds, you know, her good deeds, things that are in the Bible, are ruining her relationships. And so you go back into the waiting room, it, all the talk started to get ugly as a song on the radio came about helping one another, helping your neighbor. And she says about herself, I've always helped people in need. Doesn't matter whether they're white, 
or black or trash or decent. She remembered her conversations with Jesus. He hadn't made her black or white trash or ugly. He made her herself and gave her a little of everything. And she starts saying out loud, thank you, Jesus. And so she says, if it's one thing that I am, it's grateful. When I think of who I could have been besides myself and what I got, a little of everything in a good disposition, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, thank you. And then she thought about her husband. Anyone else having her husband? And she was just flooded with gratitude. A pang of joy ran through her, and she stood up and shouted, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And that's when the book struck her directly above the left eye. And before Mrs. Turpin could utter a sound, Mary Grace came screaming across, tackled her, sunk her fingers into her neck, and they started wrestling on the floor. It says that all at once, Mrs. Turpin's vision narrowed, and she saw everything differently. Her vision reversed itself. And so when, it, when they got pulled apart, Mrs. Turpin knew Mary Grace had something to say and looked at her and said, what do you got to say to me? And Mary Grace, without skipping a beat, said, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. <laughs> hold, hold that thought. Jesus is, it's the same thing. Flannery O'Connor is inspired by stories like Jesus. And we need something to hit us between the eyes to reverse our vision. <laughs> so that we can see that our relentless pursuit of being liked, our pursuit of righteousness, that's what's keeping us from God and from one another. That the pursuit of Trying to impress God with our good deeds is just as toxic and dangerous as willful sin, like living like a tax collector. And in the words of the theologian John Gershner, he says that the main thing that keeps us between, that's between you and God, is not so much your sins, he says it's your damnable good works. But Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We need grace to switch things around, to hit us between the eyes, so to speak, to change our goal. See, I think if you stop and think about it, how many ministries are set up to get the tax collector to look like the Pharisee? That, that, that's the goal. We want him to stop breaking the Ten Commandments, start keeping them. And that's, a, that's progress. I'm not going to lie. But Christianity is not about going from being very bad to very good, though that will be a side effect of grace. No. The goal is to understand mercy. And that's what the second man models for us, the tax collector. So you've got a good guy and a bad prayer. Now you have a bad guy and a good prayer. So you look at verse 13. It says, the tax collector, standing far off, who couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, there's two things everyone hates, taxes and tax collectors. And Jesus is picturing using somebody that in our minds would be much lower than we probably think they would be. He's, he's like a Benedict Arnold, a traitor, 
and a pimp all wrapped up into one person. Because this is how tax collectors got their job. They, Rome said, I need a tax collector for Jerusalem. And so the Jewish, the Hebrew tax collector would come to Rome and say, I'm going to collect $100 million for you this year. And so they all, that sounds great. You got the job. And so this Hebrew signs up to work for the enemy, the Gentiles. He's a traitor. And he's going to take Roman soldiers to your home and take your money and take more money than Rome is asking for. So he's a bully. And the equivalent would be like a Jew working with the Nazis in the concentration camp to turn people in. So you've got a guy who's cheated and lied and stole and abused power to get to, get to the top. Tax collectors were wealthy. They were partied. They had women. Even the Romans associated them with brothel people, brothel keepers. Make sure I always say again. They're shady characters. All the Ten Commandments. I mean, they haven't hit any of them. And this guy says, "God be merciful to me," and he goes home justified, accepted. That guy is in, and the the Pharisee is out. The non-religious guy is praised, and the religious guy is cursed. Does it make you mad at grace? <laughs> I mean, those of us who know we're a mess can take a deep breath. But those of us who are trying really hard, it's like, that guy? Don't you see what I'm doing, God? Look at all the, all the hard work I'm putting in. What's, how come he gets in before me? He's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a traitor. A sinner, how's that fair? What makes this man's prayer so good? Look, he's not comparing himself to anyone other than God. He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He's not looking around. Nor is he so beat up by his failures that it keeps him away from church. There's no... He doesn't have the sense of superiority, nor is he drowning in an inferiority complex. He just comes. There's no comparison. Just, God, you have a standard. I'm going to compare myself to you, and I know I'm doomed. Be merciful. And look at the content of the prayer. He says, be merciful to me. It's more than just God, you know, come on, let me off the hook. It's... It's not the normal Greek word for mercy either. It's the Greek word hilasterion. And he's, what he's praying is, make propitiation for me. That might not be a word you're familiar with. That's okay, I'll explain it. He's saying, God, pay for my sin. I've made so much of a mess that only you can fix it. I can't pay the price, because if I pay, I'm, I'm only going to get judgment and justice. And so he says, God, be merciful to me. God, make propitiation. Make a sacrifice for me. Pay the price for my sin and selfishness. And so if you know you're in the temple, the hilasterion, the mercy of God, is actually right there in front of them. Because in the temple, we talked about this, you have the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God kept the Ten Commandments. He said, put them in there. This is how you live in my kingdom. And what it pictured was this. If anyone was to come into God's presence, they must be righteous 
as God is righteous. They must be holy as he is holy. They must have kept all Ten Commandments perfectly. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You don't get an off day. No excuses. To never judge. To not act like Mrs. Turpin. To never compare yourself. Of course, we're doomed. You know, I'm not like that. I'm not perfect. Nobody measures up. And so in the Holy of Holies, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was the mercy seat. The hilasterion. And what it, it's God's throne. And what it pictured, right where God's seat is sitting, he's saying, my mercy will pay the price for you. I will pay for your sins. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. After all of God's, all of the people's sins will be placed ceremonially on this animal. That's propitiation. It's God, I know you're mad at me. You need to pay something so that you're happy with me. You see it? The tax collector's prayer is not cheap grace, God let me off the hook. He's saying, God, somebody has to pay, and I know it. And I don't want it to be me, so will you take care of it? And I'm so filthy that the only way I could ever be accepted is if you clean me. God, you have to pay the price for my acceptance. And the tax collector goes home justified. The tax collector is fully accepted. And the religious guy goes home completely ignorant that he has anything wrong. The bad guy, the good prayer. Now, we're coming to a close here. How is that possible? How can God gag on the good deeds of this, this man doing what God he is telling him to do in his word and be kind to the one who's got a mess, who's, got, who's doing it all wrong? It's a complete reversal. It's only the righteous shall enter in. Only the justified shall enter. So how can a tax collector be in and a Pharisee be out? How, put it another way, how could a prostitute get in before the pastors? And the answer, according to Jesus, he says later on in Luke 18, verse 31 and following, he says, look, I'm going to go to the cross. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked. He'll be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. You know that the Bible describes Jesus as our propitiation? As the mercy of God? It's 1 John 2.2. 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the whole world's. He is mercy. When the tax collector says, pay for me, Jesus says, okay, I got this. And he walk, climbs up, up the tree and allows himself to be crucified. To be, to be judged so that you and I would have no condemnation. Because when you see Jesus, his blood being spilled for you on the cross, he's paying the price so that you could be justified, so that you could permanently be God's child 
righteous. Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, solely because of what Christ has done. Look, Jesus became the sinner. All the sins of the world were taken on the Lamb of God so that we could be righteous, so God could say to you, I like you. I love you. That's what propitiation is about. That God loved us, the objects of his righteous wrath. We deserve it. We're mean. We're judgmental. But he loved us so much that he gave his only son to take away God's wrath permanently. And so if you are righteous only by faith in Jesus, you're clean. We, we said about this morning about our kids, we have yucky hearts. We're still going to screw up. But God's wrath will not come find you out if you are in Christ. And so the promise is, if you humble yourself in repentance and prayer, Say, God, I've got nothing I can do to fix this. Be merciful to me, the sinner. He will lift you up. He'll say, look at me, child of mine. It is finished. But if you think you're okay, prepare to be humble. How should you pray? How can you do this without, how can you be religious without despising sinners? Pray like one. <laughs> Be honest. It's called confession. But, but really, it's saying, God, we don't have to look forward and say, God, will you be merciful to me? We look backward and say, God, thank you that you have been merciful to me. Here's what I've done. I need Jesus' blood to pay this once again. Thank you that it is finished. Right? And the world needs to hear prayers like this. Our kids need to hear prayers like this. God, I am the sinner. I'm the man. I screwed it up. Because when that attitude of humility and honesty gets into our prayers, how can you look at the person across from you who has hurt you and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you? Because really, you're, they're holding up a mirror. They might not have sinned just like you have, but when you compare yourself to God and to God and his righteousness alone, then we are all in the same boat, pastor and prostitute. All in need of grace, offered freely to us by faith in Christ. And so look, Christian prayer, this is the big idea I think Jesus is getting across here. He's telling us to repent of our good deeds. Don't just say, God, I screwed up today and I did something bad. He's saying... Come to God and say, I did this right, and I'm really tempted to think I'm great right now. Forgive me. I'm really tempted to think, I don't need Jesus. I prayed today, I read my Bible, I did my, my Christian duties. I even fed the homeless guy on the street, even though I didn't like him. God, forgive me of that. Forgive me for thinking I need any other righteousness other than the one you give me in Christ. So those of us who are good, we need that kind of grace to hit us between the eyes. Because that's what takes somebody who's up here and puts us right next to 
staring at our feet, <laughs> the tax collector. And for those of you who are a tax collector, you don't need me to tell you you're not doing it right. You already are drowning in your own guilt. And Jesus is saying and showing that if you come, you're going to be further in line than some of us who've been doing it right for a long time. Those who've been, who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who think they'll be first shall be last, and those who, who come in last, well, God will make them first. Jesus says, if you come, if you come by faith, you get the honor of heaven. It's good news. I'll end with Mrs. Turpin. She's, she's agitated. I mean, wouldn't you if someone said, you're a war dog from hell? It's, it's not, not a kind thing to say. But what she knew is that Mary Grace's, you notice her, her name on purpose, her words were from God. So she goes home, she goes home to her pig parlor and out into the fields, and she just starts yelling at God, how can I be me and a warthog? How can I be saved and from hell too? And so she goes out into the field and rages, and she's screaming, why me? There's no trash around here, white or black, that I haven't given to you. I break, in my, I break my back to the bone every day working, and I even do it for your church. How am I like them? God, if you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. You could have made me trash. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy. I could lounge about on the sidewalks all day, drinking, dipping snuff, spitting in every puddle. I could be nasty. God, call me a hog. Call me a hog again. Call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on the top. Who do you think you are? And she just glares at the sunset. And as the sun comes down, she has this vision. And it's a streak of light going from earth to heaven. And this is what she sees. It's a vast bridge. And on this bridge was a vast horde of souls rumbling towards heaven. And on this bridge going to heaven were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. Bands of African Americans in white robes. Battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the rear of this procession were people like herself, who had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. And she looked closer at these people. They had great dignity, like always, known for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone sang on key. <laughs> Yet she could see that by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. Even their virtues in light of the presence of the grace of God, were burned away and irrelevant. And so look, there are two ways to pray. You can pray like, pray for mercy. Or you can pray to make yourself feel better. And it turns out, if you, as Jesus says, the tax collectors and prostitutes, sinners are getting in before the religious. So run to the cross of Christ and let his grace reverse your vision and burn your virtues away. Let's pray. And Father, we just heard the good news of your gospel. And it's messy. <laughs> you tell us that the, the losers win and the winners lose, and that uh, the sinners are accepted and the, the, the good are, are rejected. 
And so I pray for all of us here that we wouldn't compare ourselves to one another, but we would compare ourselves to Christ, uh, to be humbled, to see perfect love bleeding in our behalf, and run in faith to him, and then listen to the angels rejoice with our Father in heaven. As God the Father says, Behold, my son who was lost is home again. Let us rejoice. So may these things be true of us and teach us to love one another as we pray that you would forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.